Hello, everybody. I'm Kimalina Ionescu. You're listening to the RICO Podcast, a special episode of the SCA Podcast. The RICO Podcast is dedicated to new thinking, discussion, and leadership in specialty coffee, featuring talks, discussions, and interviews from RICO Symposium, SCA's premier event dedicated to amplifying the voices of those who are driving specialty coffee forward. Check out the show notes for links to our YouTube channel where you can find videos of these talks. This episode of the RICO Podcast is supported by Toddy. For over 50 years, Toddy brand cold brew systems have delighted baristas, food critics, and regular folks alike. By extracting all the natural and delicious flavors of coffee and tea, Toddy Cold Brew Systems turn your favorite coffee beans and tea leaves into fresh cold brew concentrates that are ready to serve and enjoy. Learn more about Toddy at toddycafe.com. Toddy, cold brewed, simply better. On this episode of the RICO Podcast, we are pleased to welcome Andre de Freitas, Executive Director of the Sustainable Agriculture Network. Andre has over 20 years of experience working with sustainability initiatives, with a focus on responsible sourcing and certification in agriculture and forestry. He led the development of the first sustainability policy and implementation systems for Rabobank and Brazil, served as the Executive Director of the Brazilian NGO Imaflora, and as the Director General of the Forest Stewardship Council. Andre also served as a member of the ICL board for many years, and in 2015 joined the advisory board of Social Accountability International. At RICO Symposium in April, Andre took part in our session on sustainability. Andre talked about trends in sustainable sourcing and encouraged companies to consider whether they are having the impact they think they're having. So today I have Andre de Freitas here to talk about some of the subjects that he explores in his RICO talk. Uh, Andre, welcome. Hi, Kim. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So if it's okay with you, I thought that we would listen to your talk first and then come back and have a little conversation about it afterwards. Sounds great. So good afternoon. I've been told that I'm the only thing standing between you and lunch, so it's a hard position to be in. Uh, as Kim mentioned, I'm the director of the Sustainable Agriculture Network. We are a, an international coalition of nonprofits working in agriculture. And what I want to talk to you today is uh, about trends in sustainable sourcing and also about our journey uh, of being deeply involved with certification in agriculture for two decades and then deciding to completely change our line of work in 2017. So inertia is a very powerful force. So you start down the road, inertia takes over, and you don't really stop to reassess things, right? And that's why the subscription business model is so popular. Who hasn't had a, a gym membership or a magazine subscription or something similar that you kept for way too long just because continuity was automatic and stopping required an act of will? In our case, we had been working with certification for over 20 years in partnership with Rainforest Alliance. They took care of the logo that went on certified products. Coffee was a big part of that. And, we did the, and they also did the market development, and we did the standards that were applied to farms and also the technical systems and documents that underpinned the system. And while we had some growing reservations about the limits of certification as a tool, we kept trying to work with it. But things happen in life sometimes that make you stop and, and rethink the direction that you're going. I bet many of you know people in your lives uh, 
or even yourselves that have, uh, you have faced a major event or a scare that, that made you stop and rethink your diet, your exercise habits, smoking, or something else. For us, the, the discussions that we had with uh, Oots and Marine Force Alliance in late 2016 about merging the systems uh, were our big event that made us stop and, and rethink uh, the path that we were going on. We, um, we quickly realized that the merger, made a, while it made a lot of sense, it didn't really uh, work for us. It was not going to work for, for us uh, as a network of nonprofit organizations. So we stepped out of it, and we had to decide do we create a new certification system or replacing the things that were under the responsibility of Reinforced Alliance, or do we do something different? And our first thought was, well, let's just create a new certification system. We have all the technical components. We know how this works. We have some connections to the market. That's what we should do. But after some soul searching, thinking about the results that we have achieved with certification and some of the limitations, we decided to actually get out of that space and hand over to Reinforced Alliance our tools and systems and uh, award them uh, a license to our intellectual property. And the key reason behind that decision was that we believe that we can achieve more impact by developing alternative and complementary tools to work with the bulk of farmers that are outside of certification. We had worked with certification for many years. We knew the positive impacts that it can bring, but we also were keenly aware that it was not always the best solution for all, all farmers. Certification standards are developed um, using multi-stakeholder standard proce uh, processes. Uh, and while those bring a high degree of legitimacy to these standards, they also contribute to make these standards quite comprehensive and complex. And in practice, that can put them out of reach for many producers in any given sector. And speaking about producers, if you look at audit costs and certification fees, certification can become a costly exercise. And there's also the question of what value is it bringing for producers? Certification is, uh, works by pointing out what is not working well, what's wrong, but it doesn't really help you solving those things. So there's a question of added value there. And those two things represent a challenge in terms of scalability or how many farmers you can reach. Now, if you consider that the distribution of farmers according to their social, environmental, and production performance follows a bell-shaped curve, where you have in the, on the X, you have the sustainability performance, on the Y, you have the number of producers, so you have um, a few producers that are really, really good, a few producers that are really, really bad, and a lot of people in the middle. Certification as a tool uh, usually comes uh, at the top end of that curve, right? And is a tool that is effective in engaging people that are at that position or close to it. So there's a, the gap is not that big, and they can do the investments and, and get there and get certified and make, uh, make use of the benefits that they, certification can bring. Now, what that means is that there's a big need out there. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a large number of producers that are, are not close to getting to that space yet or cannot make use of the, of the benefits that certification could bring. And our theory when we were working with certification, our theory was, well, we're going to work with the top performers, and we're going to pull this whole curve upward. So we're going to bring everybody up. And I'm not sure that's what happened. Uh, and, and possibly what's happening is that as standards get revised and updated and tightened, what you may be seeing is actually a widening of the gap between 
the top performers and the rest of, of the field. Now, this is also a model that works uh, in a low-hanging fruit type of uh, way, and where you have some growth, and then uh, after that growth, it becomes every sub subsequent increase in uptake becomes more difficult than the previous one. So let's look at what's happening in the market. Uh, this, is a, this is a graph from a publication called The State of Sustainable Markets that was, that was launched last, last year. And if you like sustainability in agriculture, I would really recommend it. It's very long, a uh, few hundred pages, a lot of information on sustainability in agriculture. I really recommend it if, you, if you're interested in the topic. And surprise, as it was mentioned today, for economics, we also don't have great statistics in uh, certification. So you have three curves there, and what it represents is that um, we don't have good information on farms that have multiple certifications. So the top curve represents the average production in cocoa, where you would have very little overlap between the farms, the middle one is an average one, and the bottom one is where you'd have a lot of overlap between the farms, so farms with um, multiple certificates. But what we see there is, is a scenario where you have some starts slow and it grows, and then it kind of starts tapering off. And, and this is cocoa, which is a sector that has had a lot of investment in, edge, uh, in, in certification over the last 10, 15 years. And for coffee, which is also a sector that has had a lot of investment in this, is also a similar curve. It kind of starts slow and then it grows, and then it kind of starts tapering off and, and growing. So this fits with that idea of a model of, of a low-hanging fruit. And unless something is there's a fundamental change in the way these systems operate, and this includes many different certifications, includes, in the case of coffee, 4C, Boots Reinforced Alliance, Fairtrade, Organic, so this is very comprehensive. You'd have to tease that out to break if you wanted to know by systems. But it, the, the overall hypothesis is that this is, we expect that this will remain a kind of a slow growth uh, unless there's some fundamental change in, uh, in the way it works. Now, um, the success of, of certification, in, in a way, it's, there's, there has been decent penetration. So if you look at the graph of cocoa, we're talking about roughly 30% of global production. If you look at coffee, we're probably talking about 45% of global production. If you take 4C away from that, 4C is, is the bulk of the volume, you probably go to around 20%. And still significant, it's still represented, it's still great news for sustainability. Now, that's after many years. When I'm talking to other sectors that are just starting to think about sustainability, they're actually trying to think in different ways because they recognize the time that it takes for this uptake as well. So I was recently talking to um, a major tire company who's one of the largest buyers of natural rubber in the world. And what, what, what their head of sustainability was telling me was, you know what, I, I cannot wait 20 years to get 20% of my supply certified. Uh, so he said, I need quicker and cheaper solutions that allow me to invest more of my resources in supporting farmers to improve. Does that mean that certification no longer has value? Not at all. Certification is still a valuable tool, but as with any other tool, it has its limitations, and we need other tools. I think that's part of the key message. We need a multiplicity of different approaches. That fits well with another trend that we're seeing, which is single-issue sustainability and sustainability, which is single-issue or a narrowly defined set of issues in sustainability. So you see that in companies making commitments to no deforestation or to tackling child labor or to addressing modern slavery, although that is kind of, there's a different driver for that. There's regulation is a big driver for that. 
But you see these, these more single-issue approaches. And we're also seeing that in groups like the Consumer Goods Forum. So who doesn't know, uh, for, the, for those who doesn't know, the Consumer Goods Forum is a network of retailers, manufacturers, and service providers. And combined, they have a, a total annual sales of $3.5 trillion. So, so this is huge. And they, they decide that on sustainability, they're going to commit to just a, very, uh, a small number of things. They're going to work in deforestation. They're going to work in forced labor, food waste, and refrigeration. And that's their big focus on sustainability. So that's their question. That. So we're seeing that, that there, that, that focus on, on fewer issues. Another trend that we're seeing is companies moving to develop their own sustainability initiatives, so company-owned programs. And that generally is driven by our perce uh, uh, perception about added value, about engaging with your producers and with your suppliers, and about looking for different or more impact on the ground. One of my, my favorite cases um, in this space of company-owned uh, systems is that of Mondelez. Mondelez is a global snacks company. Uh, they are the owner of iconic brands such as Oreos and Milka and Trident. And they're actually pretty big in chocolate. Chocolate is one of their main businesses. They're the number two company globally in chocolate. And they were looking at the future of cocoa farming. And they, uh, they realized that the younger generations of farmers, or, or the sons of farmers, they no longer wanted to, to be cocoa farmers. They did not want to farm, co farm cocoa trees. Cocoa farming is hard work, and income is challenging. I mean, the cocoa farmers would look at the coffee farmer and say, look, those guys have it good. Uh, that gives you an idea of how challenging cocoa is in terms of income. And Mondelez realized that this is a, is a huge threat for the future of their business. There are no farmers, no cocoa, no chocolate. Right? So they decided to do uh, their own sustainability program called Coco Life. Uh, it's focused on five areas of impact. So it's focused on farming, livelihoods, youth, community, and environment. And each area has two KPIs only. So we're talking about 10 KPIs. It's a very focused program. And so far, the program's been running for a few years now. They just launched uh, uh, the latest sustainability report. Also, if you're interested, recommend looking at that as, an, as a good example. And been, they have trained almost 90,000 farmers in good agricultural practices. The fascinating thing is that they focus not only on the farm, but also on the community surrounding So they also help establish village savings and loan associations where most of the members are women. They um, supported the establishment of community action plans and distributed uh, close to 6 million seedlings of higher productivity cocoa trees to farmers, among, among many different things. So they went from this buyer demanding compliance with something to a partner that is engaged in supporting change, which is a fascinating change in, in, in their perspective. Another case is um, that of a major roaster that is relying on different certification schemes for 15% of their supply, usually for, for their premium coffee categories. And that makes a lot of sense. The, those certifications work really well in that space for them. But the question they had was, what do I do with the other 85%? Just extending those certifications um, didn't make sense for them. Uh, in terms of cost and speed of uptake, they couldn't do it. So they said, we need an alternative. 
So what they did was they identified their two most important areas of supply, chose one of them, and started engaging with the farmers and the farmers' organizations in those areas. And together with the farmers, they defined okay, what are the priorities in, in sustainability for farming in, the, in, in this area. And they came out with uh, soil, water, and climate as the three big priorities. An interesting thing was that the, it was two primarily defined by the farmers and one by, by the buyer. And they're now building a program and trying to engage other people to support this program to work on the, in these three areas. So again, a, a different approach trying to get to bigger scale. One, um, an, another topic that I think is worth mentioning is the influence on sustainability on consumer behavior. There's been a lot of research on this topic, and it's, it's a fascinating field. And I want to do a small uh, research with you guys here. So who in the audience buys two-thirds of their groceries from ethical or sustainable sources? Just raise your hands. So, this is actually pretty good. A few hands came up, but actually more than what I usually get. But this, this should, gives you an indication of the challenge that we have. You are a very, very well-informed audience. Sustainability is part of your work. And even then we have, I don't know, maybe 15, 20% of the room raise their hands. So it's a huge challenge to think about consumers in sustainability. In research that I have been involved in the past, we found out that most consumers want to buy sustainable products, which is great news, right? But then the drawback was that it couldn't cost more, it had to be available when and how they wanted, and there could be no trade-off in quality. Really challenging. There's other research that is showing that sustainability is just another element that composes the desirability of a product, and not a very strong one at that. There's a, one of my favorite studies on this is one that is entitled, Sweatshop Labor is Wrong Unless the Shoes Are Cute. And what that study found out was that consumers are actually pretty good in rationalizing their less sustainable choices to justify their purchases to themselves. And the funny thing was that um, that was not permissible to their friends. So it was okay when they did it, but when their friends did it, there was no shame on you for doing that. Other research is showing the, the influence of willful ignorance. And, and the, the finding there was that more uh, consumers that are more ethically aware or are, are more aware of ethical issues, they can uh, avoid seeking information on sustainability that will cause them negative emotion. So you're actively not seeking information. You, you don't want to know about it because you know you'll get conflicted. And I can definitely relate to that. There's, there have been times in my life where I, I don't really want to know where this fish is coming for. Otherwise, I'm not going to eat, eat it for lunch or I don't want to... So uh, it's fascinating, these studies. So realistically, we're, we're, we're looking at consumers, and um, we believe that, that it's, it's not, they're not going to be a huge influence, a huge driver of sustainability, at least in the short term. Maybe long term, that will change. But in the short term, it's going to be main a challenge. So where does all, does all of this leave us in terms of sustainability? As a, an American author from the early 20th century said, every complex problem has a, an answer that is clear, simple, and wrong. And that's just it. Sustainability is complex. There's no single solution that is going to work for you. You have to look at your supply chain and decide what makes more sense, what solutions work best in your supply chain, and maybe different solutions if you're having different supply chains in different regions. Certification is still a valuable tool, still makes a lot of sense in some cases. Company-owned programs are gaining traction and make a lot of sense as well. They can be structured as internal verification systems 
or they can be structured more as partnership models where companies are working with their suppliers and producers. Now, in order to deliver change at scale, what we believe is necessary are, are four things. We need to do a better job of understanding complementarity and context in the use of these tools or solutions. So there's no single tool. We need different tools, different approaches, and they have to be tailored to the local reality. You have to adapt them to your supply chain and the supply chain of your producers. We have to, to shift our, our focus to impact. So instead of thinking a lot about compliance, we have to think about impacts. So as a company, it's key that you think about what are the impacts that you want to have in your supply chain, and then design your interventions or adopt your, your solutions based on, on those impacts. And measuring impacts is hard, so that's important that you define it uh, at the beginning and not at the, at the end. Focus, um, as we've seen from these examples of companies that are in the consumer goods forums and others, focus on what is important, what is critical to get right now, and then over time incorporate other things. Doing less, but doing it at depth, at, across the board, uh, at this point in time we see it more important than doing, than doing a lot. And last, support. We need to rebalance our efforts in sustainability to focus first in supporting farmers to improve and then add elements of transparency to this work. Supporting farmers to tackle the key challenges that they have in sustainability is where we should be putting most of our effort in. Thank you very much. So, Andre, as you know, the SCA's announcement that you would be speaking at RICO was met with some surprise by people who had read some of your recent writing and perceived you as critical of coffee's certifications. Um, do you see your role as being one of a critic? I actually don't. I mean, I may be a critic, but I have been involved in the sustainability and certification movement for over 20 years, uh, first in forestry and then in agriculture. And I, I just know a lot about what works and what doesn't work. And, and these, um, without, having, without saying that, that everything is bad, I'm just saying that probably certification hasn't lived up to the expectations that we had when we, that was created in the 90s. When it first started to happen in certification, we, we thought it would have this tremendous impact in the, world, in the world. And actually, in certain ways, it has had a big impact. But, but if you look at market penetration and uptake, it's definitely not where I think we were hoping it would be after these, these 20 years. So, so it's not so much as a, as a critic, but, but someone, I see myself more as someone that is, is committed to sustainability and to ch change in the world, and that someone that wants to see things work and looking at things that don't work and be able to be open about these things. So for me, it's not about the, the tool. Uh, the tool is, is a means to an end, it's not the end itself. Certification for me is not, it's just a, a means to get to a certain result in terms of sustainability. It's not the end itself. And I think that's the danger sometimes that we have when we go into some of these debates with certification is that it is seen, it can often be seen as the end in itself. And it also becomes like this religion or if you are for it or you're against this. And I see myself more as saying, you know what? It's a valuable tool, but it really didn't deliver to the expectations that we, we had for it. Still has views and everything else, but we need to do a lot of other things because certification alone is not going to deliver us to, to what we need. Well, one of the key words from your presentation was impact, or you talked a lot about uh, about seeking 
tools, maybe seeking ways of working that deliver greater impact. So, you know, maybe that's a better way of framing it, like that you are not necessarily a critic of certifications, but that you are looking for an evolution that is one that delivers greater impact. Is, is that fair? I think that's, I think that's fair. I think if you look at change in the world and look at uh, impact is one other way of, I think of saying that. And if it is done by certification evolving to the point that it that can deliver this impact at a bigger scale or by new, new and complementary initiatives, I think all of that is fine. Yeah. I think it, impact is a, the focus on impact I think is, is very important. I think in the certification world, we start going down the road of oh, audits and compliance and checklists and all those things. And we forget about, about this idea of impact. Or it, or it is easier to forget about this idea of impact. So, so bringing impact to the center and saying, well, impact is what really matters and not so much compliance or not compliance. It's what, what are you being able to change on the ground or deliver on the ground? I think that's, that's the key. Yeah, talking about centering, you know, you mentioned centering impact and then also centering farmers more. And, um, and your call to action was one that was uh, all about inclusion of farms and producers that have for a variety of reasons not been reached by many of the tools that the coffee industry has been using for the past few decades and I wonder do you think that coffee roasting companies like the ones in the audience know how many of their suppliers they haven't reached with the tools they've been using my impression from I and I'm not an expert on on everybody that was there in terms of the roasters my impression from working uh, some in coffee and other sectors is that often people don't know uh, a lot about their supply chain still and there's still we would imagine they at this day and age you would know a lot and about where you, your products are coming from exactly how things are on the ground and what we find is that often people don't know that you know you know to certain suppliers but then after that you don't really have visibility of where things are coming from so my expectation would be that the level of of information or the awareness of where their products are coming from and what's the situation on the ground, uh, it's probably not all that great. Uh, and and then I, I think it goes to this, this debate of, of um, how how do you reach across your your throughout your supply chain? So so you may know maybe a little bit about a certain slice of your supply, but not not much about other parts of where your products are coming from. So that would probably be my view that, that there's some information from, uh, that you know quite well, some information on parts of your supply and others that are opaque to you. And do you know of any examples of companies or really anyone who's talking about that in that way? Because it seems to me like there's a, an enormous amount of risk in saying, yeah, we know a lot about this slice of farmers and we know nothing or very little about everyone else because I think it begs the question of, well, why? And the answer is complicated. So I see more people shying away from opening that uh, that complicated discussion than really embracing the complexity and uh, and trying to celebrate what they do know while being honest about what they don't know. There's there's also I, I agree with you, and I think there's also these issues of um, just how trade works and and maybe. The, uh, sort of 
your suppliers not wanting to to disclose their sources and and um, for legitimate commercial reasons uh, as well. So so there's um, I think there's challenges in, in in that regard. I think there's a lot of people trying to do things. One example that I think in the coffee world is uh, Chibo. Chibo is trying to do some interesting things with coffee. The, um, if you look at other sectors. We are doing some work with Nestle, which is quite interesting in getting through their supply chains uh, in some in some in some products. I I believe also the cocoa industry in some places has also has also invested a lot. They they have a particular situation because a lot of the cocoa comes from Ivory Coast and Ghana, which is very particular in the sense. So it's geographically more concentrated. But but I do think these companies are, are digging deeper and deeper on on this issue. And what do you see driving that? Is it supply risk or is it brand risk? Or um, what's the, the motivation for some of these leading companies to do that deeper digging or to experiment with new ways of working? There's, I, I believe there's genuine commitments to sustainability and, and some of these organizations, their, their directors, their CEOs being committed to these issues and so the company itself being committed. Unilever is, is a company that comes uh, more immediately to mind about and Paul Pullman and his, uh, him, him being a big proponent of sustainability, but other companies as well having genuine commitments to sustainability. So that's part of the driver. But a big, a big driver for me as well that I see in these companies is just risk management and a lot about, about their brands and, and trying to understand where their products are coming from, what issues can be involved, what, what could be potential issues for some of their, their consumers and trying to get ahead of that. Supply risk is risk in some cases, but I would say is less common than than uh, I think the the brand awareness and brand brand risk, reputational risk. Yeah, you know, there was a moment during your presentation. I loved it. The audience laughed out loud when you cited this report. Um, it's research titled "Sweatshop Labor Is Wrong Unless the Shoes Are Cute," and um, it was it was a great title, but I also feel like the implications are are pretty bleak. And I wonder if you see roasters and retailers being able to affect change against consumers. You know, or how much do you see that we should be involving consumers in the kind of work that we want to do? What I believe is that we need to involve consumers, but we we have to maybe manage our own expectations or how of how big or how much of an impact they can have. And it's interesting because uh, if you look at specialty coffees, they probably have a, a, a more leverage than other sectors just because of how how it operates in terms of the the value of the product and the the habits and the whole tradition on specialty coffees. So I believe that that's a sector that has bigger potential for consumer involvement than, than other sectors. If you look at the world and still look at the amount of people that are still struggling in terms of economic issues and they're just, they're, they're struggling with their making ends meet at the end of the month, putting uh, their kids to school or there's growing issues in terms of inequality in part of the world. And uh, so there's, there's, Sustainability is is likely not at the top of, of mind for, for a lot of people. And even for the ones that are more aware, uh, what, what uh, I think research is showing is that sustainability is one of the components of 
of, of your purchasing decision and and it may be trumped by other components other elements of your decision making when buying something which is the quality of the product or availability or price or so uh, it's um, just thinking that consumption or sustainable consumption or consumers making these ethical choices will will be a huge driver of sustainability at a at, at a large scale is not is not going to happen anytime soon I think if you look at specific products you can you, you can actually have bigger leverage as I was I was I think this is the case of this uh, specialty coffees the only little bit exception that I would I would do to that is organic uh, organic but organic the driver for organic uh, consumption is much more um, selfish it's, it's about me not wanting to consume chemical products primarily that's the driver is not so much oh, well as the health of the environment and the soil and organic matter and the biodiversity that will not be subjected to chemicals no the organic the drivers usually for consumers of organic products is me not wanting to consume uh, chemical products in that sense so the drivers on that is, is is less are less altruistic so I think their organic falls a little bit outside outside this analysis does that make sense it does. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to phrase this next thought in a particularly articulate way, but it makes me think about if consumers are motivated by selfish reasons to choose organic and the reasons for choosing other, I don't know, certifications or um, more sustainable products has to be more altruistic, then I think about a lot of the rationale for companies to invest in sustainability, including some of the ones that we were talking about, being driven not by altruism, but some sort of, I think, arguably more selfish desire to make sure that you have supply of whatever your product is in the future, or to avoid some sort of risk to your brand that would compromise your ability to grow or, um, or your market position. And I wonder whether, you know, that is a, an argument for, us to focus more on behavior change in within the industry and push less of that on to, to consumers because we are the ones as industry that really stand to, to lose. So we are um, not doing this out of altruism. We're not counting on on that. We can make those purchases for you know more more selfish reasons like like I as a consumer buy my organic products for more selfish reasons. Yeah, I, I think it's a great point, and I believe it has been uh, important. Have these two things have been important drivers? So, to reputational risk, brand risk, and in some cases, supply risk. And the interesting thing about those that are different from uh, consumer-driven uh, driver is that the consumer-driven driven is 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 a is a low percentage driver so you're talking single digits or or low double digits of your market will be consumers that usually will will kind of have this uh preferred treatment for sustainable or ethical products so a company that is solely driven by uh, uh, uh trying to get to this ethical consumer they could very well do something uh ethical or, or sources sustainably on, on those, whatever it is, five, 10, 15% of product that goes to their consumers and then forget about the other 80, 85, 90% of the products, if that's their driver. Now, if their driver is more brand risk and, and supply risk and or their commitment to sustainability, then it's a driver across the board. And then 
you can say, well, the, the impacts on, on the ground will be bigger. So I think that is exactly the case to, to make is, is about these things. What are your values as a company? What do you want to achieve? What are uh, risks that you have for your brand that, that actually can be measured financially? And uh, what are supply risks that also can be, can be important long-term? And I think climate change is one of the big unknowns if you look at coffee and, and some other crops and, and how climate change will impact the ability of companies to source products in the future. Yeah. Well, Andre, thank you so much for those insights. Thank you for everything that you shared with the audience at Rico, and thank you for being here and talking to me today. Thank you, Kim. It was a pleasure. That was Andre de Freitas at Rico Symposium this past April. Remember to check out our show notes to find a link to the YouTube video of this talk and a link to the speaker bios on the Rico website. This has been the RICO Podcast, brought to you by the members of the Specialty Coffee Association and supported by Toddy. I'm Kim Elena Ionescu. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you next time.